Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. This episode is brought to you by Riverside.fm, and quite literally because it's what I use to record both my podcasts, Everything is Marketing, and Default Alive. But I was using Riverside long before they became a sponsor. I used to use Zoom until someone interviewed me using Riverside, and I just knew that I had to make the switch. Personally, I love it because they take local recordings on each side, which gives you a reliable connection, and the highest quality audio and video tracks. Separate HD recordings, an iOS app, automatic transcriptions, it's made specifically for podcasters. People like Guy Raz from How I Built This, Cortland Allen from Indie Hackers, and even Hillary Clinton uses it, if you can believe it. Check them out and all the other features they have at riverside.fm. One more time, that's riverside.fm. On the show today is Juliet Kopecki. Juliet is the CMO at LinkSquares and previously the VP of Marketing at Tala. I wanted to bring her on because LinkSquares is growing rapidly in the legal tech space and making a name for itself. And they've been having, investing really heavily into video content and taking a drastically different approach than their competitors and the incumbents previously in the space. So you'll hear about Juliet's career path and rise to a CMO, how they pivoted and adjusted their marketing through the pandemic, and how to have fun with marketing in a boring industry, uh, traditionally like legal tech. So to start out, did you ever think that you'd be doing marketing for- Probably, you know, that's like it's in and of itself kind of a difficult question. I'm definitely someone who I consider myself a non-traditional marketer and have have had a little bit of a non-traditional marketing path. I actually started out my career after undergrad working in finance and I graduated undergrad. I studied both finance and management information systems. I was really interested in the technology side of things as it pertains to business. And so certainly at that point in time, I did not imagine marketing in my future. And so I worked in a finance career. I worked at a private equity firm doing finance and accounting for about seven years. And I'm definitely a very quantitative person. I'm definitely very analytical. And I think that finance in many ways kind of scratched that itch for me. But as I got further and further along in my career there, I kind of looked at the career path I was on. And, you know, I think I had a little bit of an aha moment where I realized that maybe being in finance wasn't where I wanted to be long term. And so I took the opportunity. I kind of also knew that I always wanted to go back to school that I wanted to do, do, do a master's. And it gave me the opportunity to look at different master's programs. I kind of considered a master's in finance. I looked at MBA programs and a couple different flavors of them. And really where I came to is that I wanted to do an MBA. I wanted to take that opportunity to say, okay, finance wasn't maybe where I saw myself long-term, but I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do next. And I had a lot of different interest areas. I was really interested in startups, in software. I was interested in marketing. Um, I was interested in sort of the product side of things as well. So I definitely had a little bit of, let's say like a quarter life crisis there, but it was an opportunity for me to switch gears. And an MBA program really allowed me to do that. I went to MIT Sloan and I love their focus on sort of diversity and background of the candidates that went to school there. Uh, they're focused obviously on tech and they're focused on, on sort of entrepreneurship and that side of the business as well. 
And I took a ton of different classes in different areas. And one of the companies that actually came out of MIT Sloan was HubSpot. The two co-founders there, Brian Halligan and Darmesh Shah, were alums of MIT Sloan, the business program there. And when I got to talking to people that had worked at HubSpot, that had interned at HubSpot, it kind of checked all the boxes for me that I was able to, I mean, they have an amazing product. Their customer is marketers. They were growing really quickly. And I love the culture there, the product, everything, everything about the company. And when I joined the organization, I also love the fact that a lot of people at the company, because they were growing so quickly, kind of switched careers even within HubSpot, that it was something that they they allowed employees to do is explore other interest areas even within the company. And it just felt like the perfect fit for me as I was sort of thinking through what I wanted to do next and having that opportunity to learn even post MBA program. And so I joined there and I actually joined in a sales role, which maybe again, wasn't, I don't know if I went into the sales role with the intention that, hey, this was gonna be my long-term career, but it was the opportunity for me to learn within a high-paced or a fast-paced, high-growth startup to understand more about marketing, to understand more of the product side. And I so appreciated that sales experience that I had. I think a lot of the skills in terms of negotiation, in terms of, um, selling that not just in that sales career that I had, but into other parts of my career that I've kind of carried with me. And during my time at HubSpot, I actually, I worked in sales. I worked in product doing customer research and user testing, and I worked in product marketing. And that's kind of how I got my start into marketing was through mm-hmm. product marketing. And I love that it was the intersection of sales, marketing, uh, and product. And I just feel like I was able to learn so much from those different experiences so long-winded answer to your question in terms of did I always know that that maybe I wanted to end up in marketing? You know, definitely not. It's been sort of a career choice that have ha- has had a lot of different twists and turns for me. But what I really love about marketing and kind of what I found was, one, I think having some of those twists and turns between, you know, starting out my career in finance, working in sales, product, and marketing has made me a better marketer in terms of my ability to work with different teams. Like I'm always thinking about marketing programs for how do they serve the sales team and how do I really build that alignment with sales. I'm also a very product focused and technical marketer. And so having that experience of working on a product team, working really closely with product managers, understanding really deeply the technology behind the product that we're we're marketing and selling has been incredibly beneficial. And I love the psychology behind marketing in terms of understanding how people buy, how people evaluate different decisions, how they really think about the value that a product is delivering. And so it's been a really interesting career path for me, but probably not one that I always knew that I was on. So hopefully that answers your question. Oh, yeah. No, and you're not the first one either. I think most people don't you know, think when they're a little kid, oh, I want to think I want to be a chief marketing officer one day. I think I've only got that answer maybe like once. Uh, and it's sort of, you know, a roundabout way. So you're definitely not the only one. But I think that, like you said, it's and it's also good because who knows what they want to do when they're young. Also, who you know, it, it depends per industry, depends per interest. People change, evolve, right? So it's pretty much impossible to be able to tell. But now you're the CMO of Link Squares. I was wondering if you can give me, so from HubSpot to Link Squares, what were some of the other kind of stops along the way that got you to where, you know, basically being like, okay, product marketing at HubSpot, first marketing entry point, to now being all the way at the level of chief marketing officer? 
Yeah, so I, I suppose in, in terms of filling in the gaps and sort of that HubSpot to LinkSquare's journey for me, I really found my love for marketing and my passion for marketing in product marketing. I think having sort of that technical background for me, also having that experience in the sales side and wanting to build that alignment. And so um, at HubSpot, I was a product marketing manager. And then my next career or my next company that I joined after that was a company, Backupify, where I was leading product marketing at that organization. It was another startup. From there, you know, I sort of grew my path within marketing leadership. But one of the things that I also love, have loved about my career and what I've done is that I think part of what has attracted me to startups is this idea of just you know, building from the ground up, whether that's marketing as a functional area, whether that's building out teams and a lot of the mentorship that comes with it. And so after a Backupify where I was running product marketing as a whole and I had a team that I was building and mentoring and leading that as really a functional er, functional area and kind of defining what product marketing meant at Backupify. After that, I joined a company, Tala, another startup, but really leading marketing as a whole. And that was kind of the next, the next challenge that I wanted to take on is that certainly through my experiences, I'd worked with a number of different sort of marketing areas, whether that was Jamangen, whether that was creative, whether that was content, but really building out a marketing team from the ground up was something that I was very excited to do and something that I'm continuing exciting to do at LinkSquares. And really at LinkSquares, it was kind of a similar challenge in many ways where when I joined the company about two years ago, marketing didn't really exist within the company. It's like, yes, marketing was happening in different ways. You know, there was a team that was going to events. There was some amount of content that was being created. There was a website that was there. So it's not to say as if there was zero marketing that was happening, but it wasn't really happening in a strategic way or with really a focus. And so when I joined the company about two years ago, I was, you know, really in charge of defining like what does marketing mean at LinkSquares, building out the team and setting out that strategic vision. And it's been such an incredible journey. I mean, we are growing so quickly. We have an amazing product and even building out that team and thinking strategically, what do I want marketing to mean at the company? And also based on the company goals that we have, how does marketing support those? And I love that strategic part of it. I love the building a team and mentoring a team. It's been a really exciting and fun challenge. And I think that's also what like draws me to startups. And what's been interesting also in my career is, you know, I think that startups themselves can kind of be this blanket term, right? But throughout my career, I've worked at startups at different phases. You know, when I joined HubSpot, they were about 140 employees. So very different from the, the HubSpot mm -hmm. of today and what you see now. The company I joined after Backupify was about 70 employees. The company I joined after that was about like a 20-person startup. And then at LinkSquares, when I joined, we were probably about 60 people and now we're a little over 100. But sort of the different challenges that come uh, from a for a marketing team in terms of, you know, has the company established product market fit? Well, there's a very different type of marketing that you use if you're kind of pre-product market fit and maybe you're trying to define your category versus uh, marketing that we're creating right now at LinkSquares where a lot of it is in terms of product marketing and how do we scale what we're doing and how do we be more effective with, with things that we know are already working. Hmm. 
Right. Yeah, I mean, it's going to look completely different depending on the company stage and size and even the industry, right? It's just like how you approach it and what your job looks like depending on when you when you start as well. I know that some people listening are going to be wondering, you know, even having had a sort of untraditional, although it's, you know, not uncommon path to, to marketing and given that you've sort of gone through a couple of different companies and now with link squares, right, you started as sort of like marketer number one, now building out a team, having like a full kind of function. What does it really take in your eyes to become a CMO and like to be able to progress in your career so linearly like that? Because I think for a lot of people, you know, there's this big transition from being like a practitioner and individual contributor to being like a, a lead and a manager and then really to becoming a leader and they're all very different types of jobs maybe something that you know comes easily uh, more easily to some people or less easily to some people so for you like what do you think it, it really took and, and takes for other people to make that jump and tr- transition to more of a leader yeah it's interesting because career path is definitely something that i think a lot about not just for myself and sort of this career path that i've laid out for my own career but also for the team that that I've built and the people that I manage. And I think that career growth can mean different things uh, to different people and at different times. And a lot of when I, what I encourage people to think about is what is that career growth path that they wanna lay out for themselves? Because I don't think that career growth has to only be, you know, someone going from, okay, I'm going to go from a manager and now I want to be a director and then I want to be a VP and then I want to be a C-level exec. And that managing a bigger and bigger team is that the only way that they can grow their career. I think that's kind of career growth in this very traditional sense, but I think it's only one way. And when I think back on like my career and kind of what helped me personally get to where I was and what was kind of like personally fulfilling for me is that I think there's career growth that comes from sort of mastery of skills, right? Where you might go deeper into a particular area, a skill set. Like for me, like going deeper into product marketing, running larger, uh, say product launches, was something that I was able to really do at HubSpot and sort of deepening and strengthening my skills in those areas and moving into different areas of product marketing. And learning those new skills was something that was really fulfilling, was a new challenge for me. But it wasn't this thing where I went from being product marketing manager to senior product marketing manager, right? But it was a career path that I wanted to take. And even if I think about some of the like quote unquote lateral moves that I might've made during my career at HubSpot where I moved from sales to working on the product team to working in product marketing, like let's say from a org chart perspective, those were probably very lateral moves. But for me, they got me closer and closer to eventually where I wanted to be. So those were definitely growth opportunities that I had. And then there's career growth that comes from, let's say, you know, moving from like manager to, you know, senior manager to director to VP. And that's kind of one career path where you can take where maybe you're, you know, managing a team and you have different responsibilities that you're taking on. And I think there's career growth that comes from there as well. So there can be kind of deepening, like if I lay it out, and this is what I encourage my team to take a look at and to think really about what is the thing that they want to accomplish at this point in their career? Is it sort of that mastery of like their existing skills that maybe in the existing role that they're in? Is it learning a new skill where that could be something like, 
you're a product marketing manager, or you want to understand demand gen, or you want to understand content marketing, or you potentially want to learn something that's a little bit more outside of marketing, or is it the sort of career path into management responsibilities where it's more let's say, building a team, laying out that strategic vision for the group. And so I think there's different flavors of career growth. And in terms of getting, you know, it's in some ways, it's like I only really know what's worked for for me. And I can certainly see like other paths that people have taken. But I think what's worked for me and that makes, you know, if I kind of zoom out and what makes me like an attractive startup CMO is that for me, I've had a lot of experience working in different sides of the business. So in terms of me being on the executive team and being a good partner to people like the chief revenue officer at my company, the CFO at my company, the SVP of product or our CTO, it's I understand a lot of the challenges that they've they've gone through or things that they're thinking about for the goals for their team or strategy that's laying them out. And I'm thinking about how can marketing work with them rather than how can marketing be at work within a silo. And I think personally for my team, having had a lot of that hands-on experience working, you know, in product marketing, you know, I've worked in startups, so I've had to wear a number of hats where, you know, I'm someone I can like jump into a system and kind of understand, like, I understand like the ins and outs of WordPress. I understand the ins and outs of, you know, whether it's like HubSpot, Marketo or Pardot or different systems that they're using. And I think for me to be able to help them build out additional skills and that I'm someone that, you know, I'm perfectly comfortable kind of rolling up my sleeves and, and helping them kind of work through a problem. I think that's, something that's a really nice complement to the challenges that we have and the things that we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great because you answered my, my next question, which was going to be, you know, how, how do you advise companies to find and attract sort of like a, a marketing leader like yourself? And I think that one, having that diversity of experience so that you can sit at the table with other executives, but also having both the practitioner and the leadership qualities of, you know, even if you're not, even if you're not required to sort of get your hands dirty and get in the trenches sometimes that you understand it and that you know it, you know, know how to hire for it. I know from, from my previous experience that sometimes some marketing leaders are maybe have been leaders for so long that they've forgotten how to be practitioners and <laughs> that can work against you because then you're sort of out of touch with, you know, how things work, reality, and it makes it actually harder to build out teams. You're not really sure what you're, what you're building out exactly. Yeah. And I think there it's really important to understand, you know, what I would encourage, let's say if if you're a CEO or if you're another member of the exec team and you're thinking, okay, we need to hire a CMO or a VP of marketing, what is the type of background that we're looking for? So for me, what was interesting when I joined Linksquares is I wanna say maybe the company was about fifty or sixty employees when I joined. They had a fairly built out sales side of the organization, customer success and product side, but not the marketing side. And what was interesting there when I talked to the CEO and other leadership within the company, you know, and really delved into like, well, what is the marketing challenge here? In many ways, because the sales team was doing outbound, they were doing their own lead generation, right? And the thing that was where they were kind of falling short is, let's say, when they were launching new features and functionality, that that sort of internal communication between the sales team understanding what's getting launched, who is it getting launched to, that rollout process in terms of having this the collateral and tools to be able to sell it, you know, and certainly that marketing to the outside world wasn't happening, right? And so very much so, the marketing challenge that they had was a product marketing challenge, 
right? And some of that product launch process, the collateral, the sales enablement, the customer marketing piece just, just wasn't really happening. And so I think for me as someone who really, where my background comes from a product marketing um, point of view, it was a very natural fit. Even for me, when I jumped in as first marketer and I was an individual contributor for there and in terms of what was gonna be an important way to even build out the marketing team and the challenge that the company had was, was a very natural fit. And that's not the case. I don't think that every startup or every company there that's building out marketing for the first time should look for someone with a product marketing background because for other organizations, they might have a very clear demand gen problem where they might have, you know, they might have like product management that's doing a little bit of product marketing in that launch process, or maybe their sales team isn't sort of as built out and as far as long as maybe LinkSquare's our sales team was when I joined the company. And so they might be looking for someone that's really strong in that demand gen capabilities. Or for another company, it might be thinking about more of that branding, that thought leadership. So it really depends. And so the advice that I always give when you know I'm talking to CEO or other leadership within an organization that is saying, hey, how do we hire a CMO? How do, what do we look for in a head of marketing? You know, it's really thinking through like, what is that marketing challenge? What is that thing that you need to solve for that's unique to your business? And thinking through like, what is that background then that's gonna be the right fit? And then obviously thinking through things like culture fit, experience wise, and those things as well. Right. Yeah, those are huge. Let's pull on the, the sort of careers thread one more time. You had mentioned sort of in our pre-interview prep that you managed to land an internship with Guy Kawasaki, which I had seen on your LinkedIn, but I didn't realize that you sort of, you know, were the one that made that happen. Could you just tell the story of, you know, what that was like, <laughs> how it happened and what you took away from that experience? Just kind of a crazy story. I think, you know, one of the things that has worked out well for my career, I'm, you know, I have a strong belief that that, you know, you as an individual are probably your own best advocate and that you kind of have to to create opportunities for yourself. If you're not on this really clear, obvious path to people, if you want to do something different, if you want to be maybe a little bit of a career changer or switcher, that you have to kind of create that path for yourself and you have to advocate for yourself because people might not just by looking at your background think that something slightly outside of it is what you want to do. And so I think for me, when I was in business school, I knew that I wanted to to kind of do a career 180. And I knew that I would need to kind of, you know, explain how my background was a fit for different things that I need to carve out this own path for myself. And in business school, I mean, it's a two-year program. So that summer between my first year and my second year, you know, it's when people do their summer internships. And I definitely had like kind of a non-traditional experience there. I actually did like three separate internships during that summer. And one of them was with uh, Guy Kawasaki, who is, you know, certainly if you're not familiar with him or your listeners aren't, he's, look him up. He's absolutely incredible. Everything that he's done from being an evangelist at Apple to writing some incredible books on innovation and entrepreneurship, starting companies, um, investing in companies, just incredible mind. And I kind of had had a loose connection with him. I think like maybe it was my husband had exchanged a couple emails from him. And so I asked my husband, you know, he's someone, Guy Kawasaki is someone that I had had really admired. And so I asked my husband to introduce us over email. And I was like, you know, this is someone I knew that I could learn an incredible amount from, you know, and I was like, I wonder if I could do like a summer project with him and kind of learn from him. 
And so we had chatted a little bit over email, but you know, I think on his end, it's not as if he was like hiring for interns. And it was something that I was gonna kind of have to carve out for myself. And I knew that always those conversations are best had in person. So I probably did a little bit of a white lie with him where I said that I was gonna be out in San Francisco, that I would love to meet him up, meet up for coffee if he was open to it. And I was like, you know, I have to be out in San Francisco sometime in the next three weeks. Would you be up for meeting coffee? And I kind of knew it on my end that if he said yes, and he picked a day and a time, that that was what I was going to book my trip around. Mm -hmm. And he did say yes. And so I flew out to San Francisco. I want to say that I flew out for a day, literally to meet him, to understand more about projects he was working on and ask him if he'd be willing to take me on as an intern. Um, And at that time, he was working on a company of his all top. And so I basically, I forget exactly how the conversation went, but I basically talked my way into an internship on the spot. And it was such a great experience working with him. I learned so much, but you know, that was something that wasn't gonna be, you know, an internship that was posted on a website that you mm-hmm. applied for. It was kind of an opportunity that I created by myself. Oh, I love it, yeah. I mean, kudos to you for actually making that happen. Uh, and I love the old, you know, when you're, I'm going to be in the city, you know, or what, what day works for you because you are, if he says yes. Right. So it's like, it's not really, right. you know, it's like, I will make myself it. available for this yeah, if he's exactly. open to it. A hundred percent. I think there was a story from maybe it was Tim Ferriss or someone else where there was just like a, this moment that clicked for them where, you know, like investors or people that he wanted to meet would always say, you know, well, the next time that you're in you know, whatever random city, you know, New York, San Francisco, Denver, Ottawa, you know, let me know. And he was like, oh man, like, I wish I had an excuse to go there. He's like, wait a second. That is an excuse to go there. He's like, great. I want to be here next month. When are you free? And then he just books his flight, you know? And so, but the self-starter part of that, you know, where you're really taking the one taking the initiative, I think is probably what you, you tell me was probably some of the magic that, you know, allowed a guy to, to take you on, but also shows a lot about sort of who you are and sort of the initiative that you take within your career. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. You know, if even if I think about like my career at HubSpot, like joining the product team there, it's not as if the people running the product team or the product management team were saying, yeah, we'd really love to hire someone for this customer research role. Let's hire a salesperson to do it right from the mm. team. But it's an opportunity that I was able to create for myself based on the needs of the company, based on my experience, you know, even as a sales rep, like one of the things that it that I think made me effective as a sales rep. There were probably salespeople that, you know, the saying that could sell, you know, sell ice to an Eskimo kind of thing, (laughs) where they can kind of, they're just so charismatic that people just want to buy from them. I don't think that was the case for me. I think the thing that made me an effective sales rep is just my deep understanding of the product. I wanted to understand all of the nuances, how it functioned. I was someone who who absolutely loved when someone was doing a free trial of our software, because to me that said, this is someone that wants to learn more about the product. And I think that's how I was an effective sales rep when I was on the team. And so when the product team was thinking more about like customer research, understanding how do we map uh, new feature development that we're doing to the needs of the customer and some that can really effectively communicate with with prospects and other marketers in the area and collect those valuable insights. 
I think that in many ways that was how I sold. And because even in my sales career, I worked really closely with the product managers just out of pure interest. I think it made it a natural fit. And that was an Mm. opportunity that was created. But I don't think that's the case always. And I think even still, you know, I still had to advocate for why I was a good fit, advocate for that transition. And it's something that I've had to do, I think, consistently in my career. I mean, I think that's whether... Whether that's been asking for additional responsibilities, whether that's even, you know, career progressions that I've made in terms of going from, you know, in my previous role where I was a VP of marketing to being a CMO, that wasn't necessarily something that just like fell in my lap, but it was something that I had to advocate for myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're the only ones can really make that happen and you can't just wait for those types of, you know, opportunities to fall in your lap as this perfect thing. You have to you know, make the asks and make the tweaks and you can sort of, like you said, advocate for yourself. Getting a little bit more into the strategy side of things, I'm curious if you can talk about sort of the balance of, you know, working with tried and true kind of playbooks and tactics and strategies that you've seen before uh, versus trying to escape the echo chamber and think outside the box and do something a little bit different, especially in something like SaaS marketing, where there have been lots of kind of playbooks outlined and things that are, you know, traditional and things that are quote unquote, safe, you know, versus trying to think differently? Well, I think for me, I think as somebody who has worked in marketing for many years now, and especially within startups, experimentation is so important. In terms of what I usually like to think about for the marketing campaigns and strategy that we lay out as a team is even thinking about, well, okay, if we're going to invest in something, what is something that we can look at and say, Is it something that we could at least like dip our toe into for, you know, a couple weeks and be able to look at the results and say, did that work or not work? And then if it's working or if there's enough sort of positive results there to invest more in it. I'm not a huge fan of, say, you know, a campaign or something that you really have to spend like six months on and that you really don't know whether or not it worked until the end of that. And that it's like this huge spend and you're spending, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on. I'm more like, how can you break that up into, you know, chunks and to see whether or not it's working or not. And I think about like things like that because it's really the way in which I have to operate for, you know, whether it's budget Uh, and getting budget for different campaigns or things that we want to run. Also, just in terms of like results, like how can we show those early wins and those early successes with things? So, you know, I think that there's always this combination between, let's say, the tried and true and the innovative things that you're doing. I mean, at the end of the day, in marketing, like for so much of it, what you're trying to do is build a valuable and meaningful relationship with potential customers or existing customers that you have. But there's gonna be different ways that you can do it and different things that resonate uh, with your audience. I think one of the other things that's probably interesting about my career is that I've marketed to so many different audiences at this point, whether that's, you know, HubSpot marketing to marketers, whether that's when I was at Backupify and we were marketing to IT people, to, you know, Linksquares where we're marketing to legal teams and typically like a general counsel or even a CFO, that the different types of marketing, the different messaging that you use and the different things that you're doing resonate differently with different audiences. Like one example that I always pull from 
is even doing something like a webinar. So you could say that like a webinar is one of these like tried and true, let's say like marketing activities that you can do, but what is like the content that you're doing as part of the webinar? So if I think back to HubSpot, one of the things that I was running was like a product demo webinar. And I thought it was really interesting when we marketed as, you know, hey, come learn more about inbound marketing, learn a little bit more about HubSpot, that that was really effective with our prospects. But when I joined Backupify, when I tried sort of like a similar tactic where it's like, hey, learn more about protecting your data, learn a little bit more about Backupify, you know, see our product in action. You know, IT people could kind of, I think, like smell that as marketing and they're kind of mm. like, yeah, I don't want to attend that. But when we were really straightforward and used messaging like, come view a 20 minute, you know, product live product demo, that we got probably something like two to three times the number of people that registered for it because they appreciated sort of that straightforwardness that like, okay, I know exactly what I'm gonna get, that maybe they were interested in our product, but they didn't necessarily want to engage with sales and they wanted something that was a little bit more of that one-to-many feel of a webinar versus a one-on-one interaction with our sales team. And that was really interesting to me. So you could say like similar tactic, but a completely different way of marketing it and messaging it that resonated completely different with two different audiences. And and it's interesting, you know, if I think about marketers, like we tend to be a little bit more receptive to marketing, probably no surprise, Mm -hmm. than maybe an IT audience that is a little bit more resistant to say things that feel overly marketing-ish. And I would say that legal teams are kind of somewhere we're in between. So it's been interesting throughout my career is just even like learning the different things that work with different audiences and constantly experimenting, whether it's with the tactic, whether it's the type of campaign, whether it's with the messaging that we use and ways in which we talk about our product. Yeah, in my experience, there's been like this, it's interesting spectrum where it's either like, you know, when you're marketing to marketers, like you said, they were sort of like marketers are almost like receptive to it. You know, you can kind of like do anything and they're just like, all right, cool. You know, like I get it. And like, I understand what's going on here and I, I know what to expect. I know what, what they're doing and I'm fine with it. And so you can kind of get away with a good amount. Uh, and on the, on the flip side, on the other end of the spectrum, you can market to really non tech savvy people or maybe people who aren't like constantly bombarded with marketing messages or sales messages. And you can do like really old school, you know, direct mail campaigns or kind of like these, you know, squeeze pages because like they just don't know it. They're from, they're not familiar with it. And so they're okay with it. But then there's this middle part of the, sp- of the spectrum where maybe people are like familiar and opposed to it. You know, so you have like developers or maybe it's like legal teams or maybe it's IT teams where they're sort of like they know enough to where they, they don't really like it. And that can make it really difficult because then you have to either be very straightforward or you have to get really, really sneaky. And I think what like a lot of developer focused products, you know, sort of like coat everything in like another, you know, sort of like, you know, they'll, they'll call product marketing like developer relations or, you know, content marketing now is like a technical writer. And so you have to like yeah. code it in this different message. Probably no surprise that marketers also tend to get a little bit more creative with their job titles than probably other fields. But yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think as a marketer, I mean, that's a whole other area of like growth in terms of like building out your skills is even sometimes, you know, learning a new audience and a new way to market and what's going to resonate really well. And kind of like, I think to the point that you were bringing up, I think one of the things that's been interesting for us at Linksquares 
is with our audience being legal teams, that some of the, that technology and buying technology is a little bit of a newer experience for them. A lot of times if you talk to a legal team and you ask them, you know, what pieces of technology that do you use for your job? You know, they're listing off things like, oh, we use Microsoft Word to write contracts. You know, we store everything in Dropbox or Google Drive. You know, sometimes they're using an e-signature tool like, like Adobe Sign or DocuSign. But I thought what was really interesting for me, you know, when I started out at LangSquares and was really trying to understand this buyer better, you know, to me, that's that's what I would consider general office productivity tools. You know, these are things that are available right. across the organization versus, you know, you ask a marketer, what are the tools that they use to do their job? And I could probably list off 15 to 20 things that we use as a marketing team that are just for marketers. And so what really struck me there is that a lot of times if they were looking at a tool like LinkSquares, it might be the first technology purchase that they're making for themselves, right? Something that's really focused on just a legal team's need. And that really informs sort of the marketing that that we do. And the way that we approach talking to this audience is that, you know, this might be the first time that they're purchasing a technology tool in terms of helping them understand, like, what does that process look like? What are the things that they should be thinking about with new technology? How to maybe like ask for things like budget and how do you make that case? You know, things around like ROI and what our software delivers are just incredibly important. And it's also a reason why we've really focused and doubled down on video. That was really an important thing when I when I joined LinkSquares and when I looked to build out the team that I knew would be incredibly powerful for us as a company is, you know, thinking through, well, okay, if it's your first time maybe buying a technology product, you really want to understand, you know, is it going to do the thing that I want it to do? Is it going to be easy for me to use? How am I going to get that my the rest of the team involved? What does that even look like? And what does the implementation look like? And I knew that video would be really powerful for us in order to get sort of that message out, to help people get really comfortable with the software, to see how easy it was to use, to see how different team members would use it and um, the value that they would get at the end of the day. But it's like really that combination of thinking through like the buyer, what are our goals as a company? How do we wanna build out like marketing as a team? And how is it going to, to complement all of those different things that we have? Hmm. I want to get back to the video piece in a second, but uh, I just wanted to revisit and finish the thought on experimentation. Just to play devil's advocate a little bit, I think some people might hear that and they, they might think, okay, well, there's some things that just, you know, you can't run a two-week experiment on because, you know, it takes too long or it costs too much or to really, like, make the most out of it, you have to make a big swing or you have to take a risk or it might take you know, three months rather than, you know, one month. And that's just sort of like the, you know, the, the cost of doing business, right? That's just how it is for this thing. Do you take that in, into consideration or do you think that inherently everything can be broken down into these little micro experiments that can be kind of tested and proven and then built out and scaled if it seems promising? Um, that's a tough question to answer because in some ways I do think that everything can be broken down in different ways. It might not be the one for one, um, it might not be the one for one, right? But I do think you can break it down in different ways. And so what I would probably challenge people to think about is for that, let's say like big, let's say like six month campaign that they wanna run, you know, what is, why do they think that it'll be effective? Like what's sort of like the underlying um, 
thing that's there that they firmly believe in. And so is it that it could be broken down or do they also have previous data that they can rely on to just sort of justify that big swing? So I'll give you one example with Linksworth. So when I joined the company, you know, like I said, there was, even though I was really, I joined and I was like sole marketer on the team when I first joined, you know, marketing was happening in different ways. So one of the things that really surprised me in terms of marketing at Linksquares was that the team had been going to events and that we had traditionally seen a very high, high ROI come from events that, you know, let's say to sponsor a booth and to go to an event maybe cost us let's say like 50K, right? We would typically see like a two to three X return from that investment in an event in terms of new business that would come in afterwards. So for me, you know, it was very easy to make the case for us, like, you know, an event is something where like, hey, you're probably booking an event like six months to a year out. It's a big one-time cost that you're making. But because the team had previous to me joining had done a lot of like smaller events, they'd seen a lot of success. It was easy for me to say like, hey, this is something that we should really double down on when I joined. But let's say for somebody else, it's, you know, they're like, should we be spending money on events? I would encourage them to think about, well, could you start out with a smaller localized event? Could you maybe host your own smaller event where maybe you're hosting like a networking night? Or could you start to build out a presence where maybe you send uh, part of your team to an existing event that you're thinking about sponsoring in the future? I think that there are probably always ways to start out smaller. And it also really depends, I think, like on the budget that you have. So obviously the larger budget that you have and, you know, thinking about like, what is the impact making some of those bigger campaigns will be in terms of like time, resources, money, and kind of like doing them as appropriate. Yeah, yeah. But I think a lot of uh, things can be broken down into smaller things and in different ways to really test out like your your sort of like underlying hypothesis as to why you think that other thing will be successful. Right, right. Yeah, I'm wondering also if you've had any experience with sort of like the opposite being true where you see something as being promising or maybe have an experiment and then you go to start scaling it out and then you find that there's maybe diminishing returns. Because I'm wondering because it's funny you mentioned events because one of my previous jobs when we were first being on the marketing team, you know, we looked down at the attribution, talked to the sales team, saw what was working already and events were actually one of the big ones. It was like, you know, something like 90% of the the deal flow had come from events. So we thought, okay, let's, you know, triple, quadruple, quadruple the amount of events that we do. And then we found that there was only like a 50% increase in the deal flow. And then there was like a 10 X, you know, cost, right. Of, of, of acquiring those customers or, or that, that pipeline, because the, you know, the, the events that we were already doing were sort of like the best ones. And then all the ones that we did after that were sort of like these smaller, lower ROI ones. So we actually scaled it back down to sort of like the core number of events that we did in the beginning. Yeah. And that's probably what I was going to say, you know, and, and sort of hearing some of that example was, yeah, were you, were you kind of going outside of that sweet spot and what terms of like what made events successful? And I think it's always you know, running those numbers in terms of understanding, are we making a smart investment with our with our money? And even if for those initial events, maybe you saw a 10x return, but then as you were uh, doubling down in it, you know, maybe that like ROI goes down to maybe it's 5x or 4x. But that also might still be like an acceptable ROI based on other marketing activities that you're doing. So you have to be able to compare it to not only say, 
the apples to apples of maybe like other events and like was that an effective use of that maybe like events budget but also in light of other marketing campaigns that you're you're running you know in terms of well like let's look at that return compared to like paid acquisition campaigns that we're doing on google adwords or facebook ads or mm-hmm. content marketing things that we're doing and some of these things like in terms of measuring the roi i mean like measuring roi is incredibly difficult because you look at an events campaign and maybe you look at the spend, but events also just take a lot of bandwidth to plan, to organize, and just time, right? Events and sponsoring events aren't always something that you can just, you know, spin up in two weeks. Whereas some of the other channels for marketing, whether that's, let's say, doing some Google AdWords campaigns can be very expensive, but they can be very, be very quick to run and easy to do like on that shorter time frame. And so seeing a different ROI and being able to measure and say, well, what is the time that we spent? How much time do we have to kind of see results and what are we comfortable with? And then also like, what is that raw sort of ROI that we see? You know, that's part of the thing that I also love about being in like marketing leadership and that strategic standpoint is like thinking through for these different campaigns and things that we're investing in, whether that's, you know, our marketing budget dollars or the time that we're spending or even like expertise that already exists on our team and things that we can do given some of those constraints is part of what I love. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big one. And speaking of events, you mentioned that it was sort of a big part of the strategy and that had been successful in the past. I have to imagine that the pandemic sort of threw a wrench in those plans and made your job a bit, you know, pretty difficult for a while. What did you do in that scenario? Were we able to sort of fill the void and the, the gap with something else? Did you pivot to doing virtual events? I'm um, just curious what your, your experience was like with that. Yeah. So this is definitely an area where we kind of experimented in. And I think where certainly being kind of that small, scrappy startup team and being able to switch gears really effectively obviously benefited us. So yeah, our 2021 plans included a lot of events and obviously, you know, plans changed. But some of the events that we had planned on for 2020, you know, gave the option where they were going to do something virtual and we could transition our sponsorship opportunity to doing a virtual platform. You know, I'll say that For us, we certainly did not see the same results by doing virtual events and sort of doing like the virtual booth sponsorships in the same way as we would in person. But what we did learn is for some of those events, being able to have speaking opportunities there did certainly benefit us. I think that, you know, the quote unquote like expo hall floor in terms of booths is just not something that translates well into Uh, a virtual platform. You know, I think that if somebody's at home watching virtual content and they have, let's say, half an hour to kill between sessions, it's not like in person where they would kind of wander that expo um, hall floor. You know, people were probably making lunch or using the restroom or catching up on other emails that they had throughout the day. So for ones that we did just a purely a sponsorship, we certainly didn't see the same results that we would have seen in person. But one of the things that we learned really quickly is that by doing speaking opportunities that gave us much more closer results as doing the in-person events. And then we also experimented with doing our some of our own events. So one of the things that you know, through networking and talking to another marketing leader, 
you know, and just like trying to like gather different ideas from what people were doing is we started hosting some virtual networking nights. And even that was like a model that we iterated on over 2020 in terms of what was the right audience, what were the kind of topic areas, how guided of a discussion or like networking sort of event did people want? Did they want to break out into different rooms? And we kind of find found like a really good sort of both cadence, audience and like style for those events just by you know, we hosted, there was one month that we hosted, I think, three or four different events. And it gave us the opportunity to one, it was like a fairly low cost thing for us to do. We would send all the attendees either like a cocktail kit or a really nice bottle of wine before the event to sort of enjoy during the event. Um, and it gave us the opportunity for a fairly low cost to learn really quickly, to also learn more about our audience. And we even pull, would pull like different content ideas from that event. You know, we would hmm. kind of pull the audience ahead of time and be like, what topics are kind of on your mind that you're interested in discussing? You know, what are you looking to get advice on from your peers? And those are also ways for our marketing team to learn more about our audience and what matters to them and develop timely content based on that event. You know, and we mm. just had such a great positive reception to the event that I think especially, you know, if you think about through much of 2020, that people were kind of craving that like human interaction that wanted something that wasn't just, you know, hopping on a Zoom call and doing their job and having a work meeting, that it kind of gave people that like a very welcome sort of reprieve from some of that and they really enjoyed them. And it's something that we're gonna continue doing. Now we're starting to layer back on some of these in-person events as things are kind of opening up a little bit, but we're gonna continue to do like some amount of virtual events, whether they're organized by us or whether they're organized through different organizations. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that I mentioned it a few times on the podcast now, but I've been obsessed with this idea of content medium fit, <clears throat> basically being like, you know, there are some things that you can't just translate one-to-one to a different medium just because it's the same content theoretically. Uh, and so you take even like, you know, meetings in general or like, you know, working remotely versus working in office, like you don't need to replicate all the things that happen in the office remotely. Like what if you sort of designed from first principles a remote working experience? The same thing with like, you know, remote events versus in-person events or, you know, sort of like these networking events versus like a virtual networking event. Like if you thought more from the first principles, you would realize maybe that it would be slightly different or be a little bit of a different nuance. Like there, are, there aren't the same dynamics of, you know, in person you have everyone there with you. Like they can't really go anywhere, right? So you just sort of like point them and direct them to different places according to the agenda. Whereas if you're doing something virtual, you have a lot of things competing for people's attention. You have to do a good job of holding that attention and making sure that they have a good reason to rather than just sort of like looking at your logo and then being like, Oh, I'm going to start a chat conversation with someone over a, a virtual booth. Like that's a, it's a tall order for a lot of people. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I mean, there's so many things, not just in like the marketing campaigns that we create and the ways that we're thinking about reaching our audience. But I mean, I think just even for businesses as a whole, you know, I think what the pandemic has has forced us to do is to really think about a lot of the different ways in which like we operate 
you know, as businesses. I mean, it's interesting. The company I worked at prior to Link Squares, I was actually a remote employee. I was living out in Utah at the time and the company was headquartered in Boston. And it's funny, you know, I, I probably didn't love the remote experience. And, you know, after that experience, I probably wouldn't have said, oh yeah, I want to be like 100% remote as a company. But what was interesting, you know, think about like March 2020, it forced us to figure out how to build a remote workforce, how to be effective, how to enable our employees to be productive and effective while being remote. And my experience with, you know, working from home was completely changed. And my perspective on it was very, very different. And in many ways, because we were forced to just like rethink what were the things that like worked well remotely? What were the things that didn't? And how do we build like systems and processes and things that uh, support, you know, working remote? I think for businesses across the board, you know, it's something that we were forced to do in 2020. But I think, you know, for me personally, even it's like changed my perspective on uh, remote work. Yeah, maybe this leads us back to to the video kind of thread. But I'm wondering, you know, for something like like legal tech, and I, I believe like sort of the the product, what it does itself, it's a, uh, you call it end to end sort of lifecycle management of contracts, which is like very very niche, very specific. And you're speaking to general counsel, CFOs, CLOs, chief legal officer, I believe, very top of their field people with a huge level of experience and expertise. How do you create content for? people that are so sophisticated like that. You know, I think for something like for a really simple kind of product, like, you know, that's a very ubiquitous use, like a, a Savvy Cal or a Calendly, or maybe it's like a DocuSign or an Adobe sign, or it's just like, okay, everyone and everyone is gonna use this product. They know how to use this product. We can create content that's gonna speak, you know, to this because we know it personally. But if you're not a, if you're not a, you know, professional, you know, uh, lawyer or legal counsel, or you, if you even haven't had that experience, how do you hire people or find sort of the, the sources to create that type of content to speak to them? Yeah. I mean, I think what's really interesting um, about our team is, you know, I'm certainly, I'm not someone that legal background. I haven't worked on a legal team. But one of the things that struck me when I first saw the LinkScores product before I joined the team was that I just even as like, a business user, as someone who wasn't going to be the end user of the, the product, could immediately see the value. I mean, I think for anyone that works within a company, we all touch contracts in different ways, and that we've all worked with legal teams. And we've always, we all of us have either had, you know, I think about like, my experience working in sales and like signing up new customers. I think about my experience as a marketer, you know, going through having, let's say an event or a new vendor that we wanna work with and having to go through the contract review process or even as, um, as a manager, you know, when I want to bring on a new employee to the organization that there's an offer letter that they sign and an employment agreement that they they sign. And so I think for everyone across the board at a company, you're all dealing with contracts uh, in different ways and have worked with legal teams. And contracts are just one of these things that, you know, they're, they're really like the foundation for any company. You think about like anything that happens, whether it's like fundraising, whether it's M&A, whether it's employee agreements, whether it's vendors, whether it's customers, all of that is dictated through a contract. And 
so even for me, like I could very quickly understand like the value of it, but in terms of like putting myself in that legal, like a GC's mindset or really understanding some of the nuances in terms of how they make this decision, how they work with contracts in particular, by not having a legal background myself, I mean, the thing that I needed to do was a ton of research. And I think that's an area that I love and that I always encourage people if they are a marketer and they're marketing a new product or they're marketing to a new audience that you need to do some of that primary research yourself, right? You can't just read something on a website. You need to actually, you know, talk to prospects. You need to talk to customers. You need to, you know, just really understand some of those like nuances in terms of how they think about their job, what their job is like, how they use different products, what are those products, how do they make decisions, and how do they go through that buying process. And it's something that I, you know, I did a ton of right when I joined the company, but also that I continue to do, whether that's something like sitting in on uh, demo calls of our product, working really closely with our sales team, working really closely with our customer success team, working with customers on different, you know, marketing activities that we we do, whether that's, you know, customer case studies, whether that's our customer advisory board. But I'm always trying to learn more about our customer to understand the things that are important to them, what they care about, and how they're thinking about our product. And I think that's such an important part of marketing and kind of like no matter where you are in marketing whether you're kind of that like entry-level person just starting out or someone who i think is you know um, the cmo of a company that you really need to do and that you need to kind of really understand as much as possible some might call uh legal tech boring industry quote unquote i'm saying some not me and that might, maybe it's, it's hard to do <laughs> yeah maybe it's hard to do fun creative marketing in an industry like that. What's your experience been like sort of diving into something like that versus maybe like a a more approachable industry that's more well known? Yeah, I am certainly not offended by that comment that other people might not might say, obviously, present company (laughs) would never say something like that. But like, yeah, maybe if you asked me 10 years ago and said, hey, who would be your ideal buyer to market to? I'm not sure if legal would have come up. But when I um, when I started looking at this role at Link Squares and talking with the team, the thing that I found really attractive is, you know, certainly there were the things in terms of fit, what I learned from my career, in terms of things that I looked for in a startup that I would join in a leadership role and in a marketing role that were really attractive in terms of product market fit, customers, growth, revenue, all of those different things. But when I really sort of learn more about marketing. You know, we talked a little bit more about, we talked a little bit about this early in our conversation where, you know, I think marketing to marketers was really exciting for me as a marketer because like marketers are very receptive to marketing. They're kind of like, tell us more. We love your marketing. You know, I want to, you know, even on the sales side when I was at HubSpot, people were like, I just love the marketing that you do. And I will talk to you as a sales rep because I just love your company, right? Mm -hmm. So very receptive. IT, probably opposite end of the spectrum or not as receptive to marketing. And I think legal is somewhere in the middle. And then I think for the marketing that we do, where, you know, with me having that sort of background at HubSpot, you know, I definitely kind of drank the inbound marketing Kool-Aid, but the content marketing piece of it and how do you draw people into your site? How do you think about attracting them and really building out like that content foundation is something that, 
you know, based on this buyer, based on kind of where they are in the software purchasing journey, that is a great fit for it. And so that's something that I think is core to me as a marketer and the marketing that I like to create. That was really interesting. And then I think for us as a buyer, when I was at HubSpot, one of the biggest challenges we had is people were like, I love the marketing that you do. I love the product that you have. But one, either I have no budget, right? Or two, they say, you know, I want to buy HubSpot, but we're already using a different piece of marketing software. So I have to wait until that contract runs out. And it was very much mm. so a rip and replace model. Whereas with legal, because they aren't really using a lot of technology tools, like most typically when we talk to a legal legal buyer, this is the first technology purchase that they're making for themselves. So you're not in this rip and replace model of it. And so it's a much easier sell because you're not waiting for some other contract to run up before uh, they can implement it. It's also a much different sort of mindset, I think, when you have something existing in place and you're thinking about replacing it versus when you have nothing and you're buying something for the first time. And then I also think from a budgeting perspective, very much so, you know, a general account chief legal officer or a CFO, if they see the value and the need for your product and they want to purchase it, then they have budget to do so. Versus, mm. you know, I know that it was always very frustrating to have someone that wants to buy your pr product, but there's just no way that they would be able to secure budget for it. And so for me, you know, when I looked at all of those different characteristics in terms of where people were in their software purchasing journey, how receptive they were to marketing, would they be able to buy something if they truly wanted it and saw the value in it? It became a really interesting and exciting sort of buyer to market too. And so I definitely, you know, sort of like my gut reaction maybe 10 years ago would have been like, mm, not sure. But as I dug more into it and I kind of understood the market better, this buyer, really what the value our product was going to um, deliver to them, it became really exciting really quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what we all find is that we're, everyone's a nerd for something. And if you can just like help people express their, their nerdiness towards, you know, their work, towards their passions, towards, you know, whatever it is, then they'll be all on board no matter, you know, what it is that you, that you sell, right? You can effectively communicate to a crowd no matter who they are, as long as you're speaking their same language. And even for like a boring industry, quote unquote, that's even more opportunity to sort of have some fun with it, you know, make light of a lot of, a lot of the jargon or jokes or sort of stiffness maybe that's been there historically. And so there's even more sort of room and opportunity to, to have some creative. Definitely. And I, you know, I think that was kind of the second half of your question around being more creative. I mean, I also, you know, kind of did my due diligence before I joined Link Squares. I wanted to see what else was on the market. What were people doing for marketing? And I would say that a lot of it was, let's say like very traditional marketing. I mean, I really saw the opportunity there to be more creative, to be more sort of interesting, to do more modern marketing and to think mm. a little bit more about, you know, how people wanted to be marketed to. And we've seen great results. Do you have any specific examples of sort of how you've thought a little bit outside the box or you try to be a little more creative or you've you know tried to have some sort of you know creative light into the process and where things have been a little bit more stiffy in, in the past or uh, a little bit more safe in the past? 
Yeah, I'll give you probably my favorite example is, so, you know, I we had talked a little bit before about events being a big part of the marketing that we would do. And probably no surprise if you go to the, a lot of these legal, legal tech events, you know, you kind of have like a standard booth. People have what I would call like, quote unquote, like safe marketing, you know, logo, plain colored background, wearing khakis and business casual at the booth kind of let's say like sitting behind a table and you know we do events a little bit different at link squares you know my thought is always how do we be a little bit more creative how do we be more engaging how do we make people also remember us and what we've done so back in 2019 this is probably about a month after I started at the company. We were going to an event. It was the Association of Corporate Council. They hold an annual event. And I was like, all right, well, what can we do that's a little bit more interesting? And this was, the event took place like right around Halloween and we were sending a big team. Like we wanted to make a big sl- splash. I think we sent like 15 people total. Hmm. And I don't know if you have ever been to Dreamforce, but you know, I think that Dreamforce is kind of like the marketer's dream for events where people have like a booth theme, really like awesome like giveaways. And I was like, how can we kind of apply those like Dreamforce level tactics to a legal tech event? And so there were 15 of us going, we all dressed as superheroes, you know, and, and for me, what I was thinking, it's not that I'm the marketer that's like, oh, let's have the team dress in costumes. Won't that be fun? But I'm thinking about it more from the perspective of like, you know, back in 2019, we definitely weren't the most well-known contract management software out there. You know, we definitely didn't have the most money of the different vendors, but I do, but I did think like, we can be more creative and we can be more interesting and we can give people a reason to stop by our booth. So we had this incredible booth set up where we did, you know, this theme backdrop, We were all dressed in costumes. We had arcade games at our booth. We were giving people every reason in the world to come stop by and say hello to us. People Mm -hmm. were taking pictures with us. They were doing FaceTimes with their kids because, you know, we had people dressed as Captain America. We had people dressed as Thor. We had um, everybody sort of engaged with it. And it was just, we had an amazing time. Like we were definitely the people having fun on the floor. And people were like, what's going on over there? I want to see what's happening. Let me talk to them. But at the same time, you can't like do a tactic like that and not have really the product to back it up, right? Mm -hmm. Can't just be all a sort of flash and no substance. But we have an amazing product. Also, like the team was just really bought into it. It was something where I think having that really close sales and marketing alignment You know, I went to our chief revenue officer and I was like, Steve, I kind of have this crazy idea. I want to see what you think of it and what the team thinks of it. Because I knew also like, hey, like superhero costumes and stuff like that don't work unless the team is loving it and having fun with it. And it's like, are we sending a team that's going to have fun with it? That this is going to be interesting, creative, and not going to be a sad person in a costume at a booth, right? But the team loved it. You know, we gave everyone like a costume budget to work with. They got to pick out, you know, what they wanted to wear, who they wanted to be. And we all just had an amazing time and fun. And people can sense when you're kind of having fun versus when you're being forced to do something. But I think a big part of why it was successful was just the team that we have and sort of that relationship we have between sales and marketing and that we're all working towards like a common goal and trying to achieve the same thing. 
it creates sort of that, that magnetism where it draws people in like gravity where everyone's having fun and people are enjoying themselves and, and you're actually seeing, you know, sort of your creative vision come to life in a way that everyone is, is excited about and is on board with. Beginning to, to wrap up here, I'd love to take a peek at your personal swipe file, as it were, into some you know, marketing examples you think are great, noteworthy, that you've saved recently for some you know, important reason. Or are there a few that come to mind that you can walk me through? Yeah, so we do a lot of work with video. You know, hiring a video person was actually one of the first hires that I made as I was building out the team, the marketing team at LingSquares. And so we're always looking at innovative things that people are doing with video. And especially as we're hiring more and more across the board with our team, we just actually raised our Series B. We're even thinking about different ways that we can brand the company. So I really love some of the great product videos and content that some different companies are creating like Bamboo HR. I love some of the videos that they create around their company culture and who they are and really clearly defining it. I think Wix did a couple of really interesting video campaigns recently. I love Wistia. They're another local Boston startup and video hosting platform. You know, we use them. I love the video content that they do and that just you can tell it's a Wistia video when you see it. And mm. I think that's so incredible. And it's something that, you know, we work towards at Link Squares and that we want to create. You know, if you look at a piece of content that even without hearing it, that you can see it and you can say like, oh, I can tell it's something that Link Squares created. And I think that's, it's just incredible. So I always love looking at kind of like new videos and what companies are doing with video. You know, in terms of, let's say like consumer campaigns for probably just like, me outside of like wearing my Link Squares hat. I love sort of this emergence of campaigns that we're seeing where people are using like actual people and like not, let's say like models in a way that just feels like very authentic and very accessible. There's a company, Somersault. They're a swimwear, a clothing uh, company. But I love like this recent campaign that they did where it was just using sort of normal people but also um, they had like different athletes, different sort of just like different people across the board modeling their swimwear. And I think what they're doing is really, really interesting and really just amazing and authentic. Yeah, I love that. I love, what the, else. I love the di diversity. I've, I've thought, always thought that I was like, it's so strange that every family is just like a three person traditional, you know, white family and they're all like supermodels. <laughs> like, we're, we're all the normal people out here. And, and really, I think just in the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of brands start to embrace that and especially be more intentional about, you know, diversity and color, gender, political thoughts and, and preferences and all sorts of stuff like that. So it really is a more accurate reflection of reality, right? Which is like, okay, well, that doesn't sound like a crazy thought, but in marketing and advertising, it's been this huge shift. Definitely. And we're trying to think another company, I mean, in terms of like product marketing, I love what Peloton is doing. I mean, mm. I have a Peloton and I just think for them as a company, they've just really nailed the user experience. But I think about the marketing that I get with different types of rides, different instructors, even just like different ways that they're innovating how people ride and use the bike. And now across like different products that they have, I think that the product marketing that they do is pretty incredible. Mm. I love it. Yeah, those are great examples. So a final question for you. When I say everything is marketing, what does that mean to you? What comes to mind? I mean, I think everything is marketing in, in this tangible way where I think for all of us, you know, we're always trying to build those relationships. We're trying to build that connection with people. I mean, I think that's what at the core, you know, 
marketing is, is how do you build that connection? And so I do think like in some ways, you know, it's hard to be effective and kind of like any job you have without building that connection, whether that's say like internally with the team that you work with, whether it's with your end customer, whether it's with prospects, you know, across the board, whether it's building that community. So yeah. I love it. Well, it's been a wealth of uh, knowledge and experience. I love your perspective coming from the world of legal tech and also just all the, the d- diverse background and experience you've had beforehand. So I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing everything so transparently. Yes. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Juliet for coming on the show and make sure to check out all the open positions at Link Squares. And if you can spare a moment, click on the link in the show notes and pop on Twitter to thank her for coming on the show and sharing everything that she's learned today. To wrap up, here are a few of my takeaways. First of all, there is no such thing as a boring industry. In fact, these can be the most fun since everything and everyone around them is traditionally very stuffy and bland. Secondly, it was fascinating to hear about how they pivoted from in-person events to online events and what that actually looked like and how a lot of times they kept it very simple and bare bones. And finally, video is going to be bigger and bigger part of everyone's marketing strategy going forward. doesn't matter what you sell or what industry you're in. Video is in demand. It's being prioritized in the search results. People want it. People are used to absorbing it now as a viable sort of content consumption medium. And it's just going to get bigger and bigger. If you've got a question or takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com slash membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.